Welcome everybody here to another episode of the Wisdom Keeper podcast. I'm Dr. Miles Neal. I am with a delightful uh, Dakini, Shiloh Shiv Suleiman, and we are at Iba uh, Resort in Bali on the uh, family uh, residential home of our good friend in common, Jokrade Kirtiasa, who was also featured on a previous podcast along with his sister, Maya Kurtiasa. So I'm very, very delighted to get into today's conversation. Uh, Shiloh is a artist, an activist, and an ethereal being. So I'm going to start today with a quote that we sometimes uh, launch the podcast into, which will just give you a sense of how you'd like to really start uh, to bring all the threads together of our common interests. <clears throat> and the quote is, Sometimes in order to go forward, we need to go back. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts on that? Well, um, where I come from, which is India, time isn't linear, it's cyclic. So actually, surprisingly, the further you go back into the past, sometimes you magically appear in a future. Um, so I would respond to that <laughs> with actually an invocation, just to set us on the right track. Mm. Um, it's a 3,000-year-old text. Uh, the Rig Veda, and it's the Devi Suttam in the 10th book of the Rig Veda. I'll play a, maybe a second of it and then I'll translate it for you. So um, it translates to, I am the queen, the gatherer up of all treasures, the most thoughtful, first of those who merit worship. The gods have established in many places, but they make me a home and enter into it. Through me alone, all eat food that feeds them. Each man who sees, breathes, hears the word outspoken, they know it not. Yet I reside in the sense of all of their lives. Here, one and all, the truth as I declare it. I myself announce and utter the word that God and men alike shall welcome. I make the man I love exceedingly mighty, make him nourished, a sage, one who knows Brahman. I rouse and order battle for the people. I created earth and heaven and reside as their inner controller. On the world summit, I bring forth the sky, my father, the home and the waters, the ocean, my mother. I pervade in all existing creatures as their inner supreme, supreme self and manifest them with my body. I created all the worlds at my will without any higher being and permeate and dwell within them. Hear the truth as I declare it. I am the queen, most worthy of all worship. Um, so the reason why I think this is such a beautiful way to begin as an invocation 
is we are in a new world we are in a new age as we're all talking about there is a transition that's happening and i think for for many many centuries um the feminine has been quieter and i feel like there is um a new age that is coming a new beginning that is coming where the feminine is embodied is present and is supreme mm-hmm. um, yeah and and actually able to meet the masculine it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a thought that I've had many times the rise of the feminine um, in my own tradition in the Tibetan tradition mm-hmm. the uh, embodiment of green Tara she's uh, often depicted with one leg in Samadhi in meditative posture but the other leg is um, in activity and action coming forward mm-hmm. and I think you know it's a it's a good archetype for the for the the time that we're entering into both one that unites dual opposites Mm -hmm. and balances them Mm -hmm. so we have the idea and i think you embody this in many ways you have your spiritual tradition but you're also an activist Mm -hmm. you're 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 in the world but you're also bringing in the mythological perspective you're bringing in deep deep spirituality but you're not aloof Mm -hmm. you're you're invested you're deeply invested and also i mean you're at a embodiment of the shakti the female power that it, that we're trying to reclaim i think so i think it's a, a very generous way to start the conversation and you know where would you like to go from here um we could begin i guess with personal histories yeah that would always be a good place to start creation stories in a way um so like you said i reside in in both worlds uh, the world of the etheric the mythological but also sit at the front line of protest um recognize that that yes there is an unwounded space um of the gods of the deities of the myths uh, but there is also a wound there are also struggles that we need to to confront um and i can start with revealing uh, my own wound i suppose it's always a good place to start um i started painting when i was 13 years old um at a moment actually which was a tremendous moment of fear in my own life uh, my father i call him a magician and he was best known for his disappearing acts and one day he vanished <laughs> and uh, my mother found herself responsible for two children with no real income um she was a cartographer at the time which is a very strange you know and and niche hobby i would say not something that you can really make a lot of money with um but she began to paint and i began to paint with her um during the day she would teach art classes and i would go with her carrying her box of crayons and paint with her and then at night uh, we would come back home and we would just spill bottles and bottles of paint onto paper mm-hmm. um and at first our work was full of a lot of pain and abandonment but here's the marvelous thing about pain is that when you begin to let it out of your system it begins to shape shift and uh, shape shift we did you know we we grew out of murky waters like straight spine flowers at lotuses And I often say we almost painted a world and then we stepped into it, uh, painted a magical world and stepped into it. So beauty saved me and beauty continues to save me every day. It became into both the financial, but also an emotional, alchemical backbone for yeah. my family. Yeah, there's already, I mean, in that backstory, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to ask for a few more details because I can yeah. see the threads already being uh, cast on the loom here. So you have, a, you know, you have alchemy mm-hmm. and you have art. Mm-hmm. um but you have trauma mm-hmm. and 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 love mm-hmm. um and your mom must be an incredible woman too she's yeah her name is nilofa suleiman uh, which means the blue flower suleiman is the name for prophet 
um, I'm also named the mountain in Afghanistan. And she's an incredible, incredible woman. Her painting, she's um, from cartography. She's now moved into a very, very miniature style of painting. Um, and I mean, over the years, basically, as she she painted and kind of created this universe of her own, reclaimed her childhood, her memories through her paintings. Um, you know, she found herself in a position where her paintings, like she went and did her first show. Her paintings were sold out at her first show, and she hasn't looked back since. And for me as well, it was a kind of similar journey where having let all of the pain out of our systems, um, I began to illustrate children's books. And mm. then from there, by the time I was 18, I had 10 published books, uh, then got into new media storytelling. Mm. So both of us, you know, the artists in us kind of grew up together in a way. Mm. And we used art, at least I used art very consciously as a way of being able to heal myself. And now with the work that I do with the Fearless Collective, it is about bringing that alchemical practice into social justice spaces, into public space, um, working with communities on the margins, and recognizing that we can shift the way that we see ourselves through art. Yeah, I think um, there's something there's something very um, necessary about the um, the use of art as a medium, mm -hmm. um, but there's also something about your mom's presence. Mm -hmm. So there's almost, there's several components at play in your healing process. And I'm sure as we go through this conversation, we'll actually articulate them because I'm sure they're quite conscious in your social work. Mm -hmm. But like there's one element of not sidestepping your pain of being abandoned. Mm -hmm. yeah. And when we're talking about alchemical process, we're starting with the premise that you're in touch with mm -hmm a deep wound of not really quite understanding at that age why your dad is disappearing. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm only imagining, but seeing your mom under a lot of pressure, having to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And maybe there were other things that you want to talk about, like in terms of the real substance of your pain or your trauma. I think we all too quickly get the idea that there can be a way through, but it's <laughs> it's another thing to really hear it and slow it down and make a sort of workshop out of it in yeah. terms of like, what do you actually think is going on while you're painting with your mom? Mm -hmm. What you're feeling, what it's what the added element of her being your witness mm -hmm. also is another another aspect of it. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I would say we witnessed each other in those days. Mm. Um, with her, it was very much about looking for a way to use what she had to make it through onto the other side. Where her practice is not as much embedded in personal history and, and trauma as, as mine is. And um, I started by painting a lot of self-portraits when I was much younger. And, um, you know, again, I guess the archetypal lineage that I come from would be the Frida Kahlo's, the Amrita Shergill's, women who painted themselves. And when I look at women like Frida Kahlo, she painted to make her pain visible. Um, and you see it in a lot of her paintings. You see her with like thorns embedded into her skin, or you see Diego's face painted on her forehead. There's no escaping the pain that she was in. But I think with every reincarnation, so to speak, of the same archetype, there is a way that we can move forward. And with mine, what I found was it wasn't just about making pain visible, it was about the transmutation of pain. So each time I painted myself, you know, in the beginning, my self-portraits, when I was like 15 years old, super angsty, listening to a lot of like RATM, <laughs> being a pretty angry kid. 
at first my self-portraits were full of a lot of anger. Like you look at some of that work and you wouldn't recognize it as mine at all. Um, but like I said, the marvelous thing about being able to see yourself and to paint yourself is that you move from who you're told to be to who you want to be. And so with each self-portrait that I was making back then, it wasn't just about making what was inside of me present, it was actually about making who I wanted to become, how I wanted to see myself um, visible. Like it was an imagination of, of a healed me. And in the process of having that imagination, having that vision, I was able to step into it. Because mm -hmm. if we don't have an imagination, if we don't have a vision, we, can't, we don't know where we're going. So would you, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing on a Jungian lens now because mm -hmm. I'm sort of seeing Jung's use of, it's not even fabricated use, but watching his clients use mandalas mm -hmm. as a way of self-expression. Mm -hmm. And when given the kind of permission over time, the mandala shifts, mm -hmm. the quality of it shifts, the dynamic shift, it's almost like that prerequisite presence with your mom, yeah. presence with yourself, mm -hmm. sort of a kind of green light permission. Yeah. I imagine that it wasn't just a perfect rendition of your future self first, but maybe there was this more painful aspect. Catharsis to transmutation, you have to let it all out of your system before you can begin to, to turn into something else. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, this uh, a theme that I'm working on in my current book, which mm -hmm. draws on the alchemical um, slogan, Salve et Coagula, mm -hmm. which means, as you know, first the dissolution and Absolutely. then the reconstruction. Absolutely. You have to go through the dark night first before you can then use that energy to rebuild the mandala. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, I'm not sure how conscious of, of that process you were or your mom was, mm -hmm. but it's sort of, maybe it's an homage to the unconscious that just when the conditions are right, it will work its way out this way. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? So um, I think I also grew up in a generation of kids that was extremely colonized in India. That's, that's also part of the reason why my father left is we were left with a lot of self-loathing to our own soil, our own culture. Um, and when I look back now, I see that, you know, despite coming from a space that has so many cultural collective practices of transmuting, we just didn't have the same kind of access or reverence of that anymore. Mm. Um, like you said, you mentioned the mandala the mandalas are a way of moving collectively through whatever the internal experience is. Similarly, I mean, I can name a thousand examples. There's Kollam in uh, the south of India where women outside of their homes every day will take chalk and draw patterns. Um, and each pattern is supposed to bring in an intention of beauty or of transmutation into the house, something that you want to welcome in. That's a collective practice. Uh, the Mohoram processions that happen um, in India as well are thousands of people walking through the streets grieving together, just mm -hmm. wearing black and crying together. Mm -hmm. And that is also, a, even though it's a collective act, it still leads to an individual grieving, you know, mm -hmm. letting it out of your system. Um, every day of worship, every puja is, is an act of collective transmutation. But somehow growing up in India, 13, 14 years old, that wasn't the world that we lived in. We lived in, you know, a colonized MTV capitalist world. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I kind of, no, we didn't, we didn't have the same vocabulary that I have now around healing. Mm. Um, we are the first generation of open wounds. For Indian families and Indian parents, even talking about my mother's years of even a, a being in an abusive marriage, 
is not something that she had the ability to be able to speak about mm. so for me i had no choice but to turn to my own ways and i think i was very guided and protected to be able to find art yeah mm. as and beauty as a way to be able to heal myself and now as a result of that also work with other people in their own healing processes yeah when you say guided and protected you're not just saying your mom on this like human domain or no, dimension I think i'm extremely yeah yeah so so by. jump into that cuz i mean i i'm not i'm not shy about that world yeah yeah absolutely i mean i think um that unseen world is something that we are constantly in contact with even if we're not aware of it and um for me i i was brought up half hindu half muslim which is very rare actually also a lot of uh, you only find a lot of mystic saints and poets like kabir um usually the mad ones that are at the threshold of both of those spaces because one and on the hindu side you would you are called to recognize that divinity can exist in every leaf every plant every every stock or rock every stone the water the earth the elements and then on the muslim side there's no god but god um and so i find myself you know kind of in both of those spaces i wasn't brought up religious in any way but tethered to both of those communities in big ways my mom comes from a muslim family of lohars who are basically uh, metal workers who came into india they say making weapons for for alexander's army um, mm. on my dad's side i come from a unbroken lineage of, of thousands of years of temple priests who tended to a mother goddess's temple in kannur and kerala and um, somehow didn't have access to any to any of that growing up you know i had access to 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 yeah like the modern world um and i had to find my way back to myself find my way back to my roots which i did by starting to go to temples which i did by following sufi saints into the deserts in rajasthan and and kach um tracing the song lines of, of kabir and shah abdul latif vitai when i was around 18 years old uh by going and staying at the kumb um and recognizing that that i always had access to that unseen world but even without knowing even without the vocabulary um there was it was still there very much present yeah i'm i'm I, right there you just confirmed the, the quote we we started with which is going back i mean and I'll, i'm also holding on to a second ago this idea of collective grief mm-hmm. if i can just zoom out of your personal story maybe we'll t- like a breath will come in and out mm-hmm. but um the collective grief of our world culture on the precipice of a kind of death process mm-hmm. and sort of hitting the tipping point of the you talk about it's not just indian culture but world culture has become so capitalistic secularized devoid of spirit devoid of the feminine devoid of emotional o- uber reasonable uber rational the patriarchy whatever way you want to frame it mm-hmm. that everybody's suffering the same illness whatever we've exported and colonialized we've mm-hmm. now sort of con- cross contaminated the entire planet mm-hmm. and i'm i'm not sure where you draw the line personally or astrologically on the the sea change mm-hmm. but certainly i think we'd share that covid and the pandemic is a kind of threshold mm-hmm. moment culturally and we've entered in a kind of death process yeah. and and i really think uh, unfortunately people like you will help other people grieve because that's what's really necessary mm-hmm. it's it's all well and good to think about the the other side of the revolution where a new world is being created but yeah. we're also talking about maybe a vast 
amount of time of collective grief. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Well, I have little patience for <laughs> for for grief in a sense. Um, just in a way that I think you know, there's a danger of doing both. There's mm. a danger of being completely utopian, rose tinted. The new age is here. Like this, that is a danger because we have to sit with the grief. We have to sit with with the wrongdoings. We have to sit with the injustice. On one hand, but I also have a very low tolerance for being in a place where we're, you know, the, with, with this over-apocalyptic thinking of like, this is the end of the world and there's nothing we can do about it and all we need to do is is hide away and pray. I think there's a way that we can do both. And I think, again, if I can be both Hindu and Muslim, you know, if I can, if I can belong to both the earth as well as the land of the stars, then I'm sure that we can also find, I have absolutely no doubt that we can find a way to be able to both sit with the grief, sit with the pain, recognize the trauma and also find another way of being, imagine another way of being. Um, so this is, it's very close to the work that we do with Fearless. And if you like, I can even enter into that story and how I began um, to sort of create huge monuments with different communities on the streets. Yeah, bring us into Fearless Collective. All right, so um, like I said. The origin story, the myth, the, the mythological origin story. The creation story. So like I said, me and my mother in our own lives, we moved out of this moment of fear and emerged out like lotus flowers and things started to take off you know i had a ted talk when i was 21 years old published books my mom's paintings were selling out i really entered into a space of having been through the fear a space of love of, of beauty of imagination and um, also of technology also trying to use you know enter into the future while bringing the past with me um the ancient and and the future both can coexist, uh, the collective and the, the individual both can coexist. So that, mm. that space of, of both and is a space that I'm very familiar with, which also in, in the Hindu tradition, you know, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the term neti neti, which mm. is not this, not that. Mm. And then there's iti iti, which represents the feminine, which is lesser known, which, which says this too, that too. Beautiful. So I'm very much within that iti iti <laughs> <laughs> universe, where both can exist. Um, so I was, I was kind of, yeah, really in this world of love, beauty, imagination, magic, things were doing really well. We found art in our lives. And in 2012, um, which they say is also a very powerful year for so many of us, both individually and collectively, I happened to be in Delhi at the time when I felt myself in another moment of fear. Um, so the protest broke out following the gang rape of Jyoti Singh Pandey, a 21-year-old girl. Um, I was 21 at the time myself. And um, she, as she was, she was dying of her wounds in a hospital, I, I went out onto the streets um, and I actually went to my first protest ever. And it was an incredible space. You know, thousands of women had gathered on the streets to be able to not only grieve the death of this woman um, and call out the injustices of, of all Indian women, but we were also there in sort of revealing it to each other our own wounds that we carried with us because everybody everyone that i spoke to or turned to had felt some kind of sexual abuse um in their life 
and so for us, as we were sitting on the pavements in between, you know, screaming slogans, fist raised up in the sky, we would reveal to each other our, the, these wounds that we'd carried around with us for years and never really spoken to anyone about. And as we did, the way there was a kind of gentleness, a kind of poetry, a softness and a healing and a transmutation to telling each other these stories, which was something that I didn't see present at all in any of the national media because the national media was full of a lot of fear. It was, you know, saying, don't go out at night, you'll get raped. Don't walk on the streets, you'll get raped. Um, it reported a lot of stories of the pain, of the trauma, but in a way which was actually re-traumatizing. Re yeah, was, was re-traumatizing so many of the women who had experienced that kind of abuse. And as we sat there telling each other our stories, revealing our wounds to each other, it felt like there must be another way. Like there must be another way for us to use storytelling as a way to be able to heal, to use art as a way to be able to heal while also doing justice to to um, the, the pain that does exist. Um, so I quite by accident kind of sparked a viral online movement of, of hundreds of women revealing their stories in these fearless and informative ways. Um, it was an online viral campaign at that point, a poster campaign. And from there I descended into, I would say, what was my own journey around uh, fear. Uh, I was at the time, you know, riding across the country to the Kummela, which is the world's biggest spiritual gathering. I was going there as a seeker. Um, and it was a time, Uttar Pradesh, where the Kumbh happens, is a, it's a very unsafe space. You know, it's like you can't, you don't really see women on the streets there. Um, and if you do, you, you can feel a thousand eyes on you. And as I was riding from Delhi, from the protest to um, the Kumbh, as a seeker trying to find a space, um, I found myself in multiple different places. You know, our bike would break down and then we would have a, a circle of men just standing around us. And one by one, I would find myself like starting to curl up, like starting to cover my head, starting to, to make myself smaller and smaller and smaller because I was so afraid of the gaze. Um, until at some point, I decided to actually look back at everybody and ask them a question instead and call them in rather than call them out and in the process of no longer seeing myself as a victim and making myself smaller I found found that sometimes you know their gaze would shift or a conversation could occur so by calling people in rather than calling people out I was able to transmute some of the dynamic there uh, when I got to the cum now the kumbh itself means womb, right? Um, it's the gathering of three sacred rivers, the Ganga, the Yamuna and the Saraswati, all goddesses. Um, and yet it wasn't a woman's space. It was uh, 30 million people. A lot of them are men. A lot of them are Naga sadhus from a very Shaivite tradition, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Naked men covered in ashes, holding through shuls, lighting dhunis, fires, sacred fires. The word dhuni comes from yoni. Um, so even though the feminine was everywhere, as in the language of the kumbh and the dhunis, uh, in the goddesses that we worshipped, in, in some of the temple spaces there, in the rivers that we actually sat beside and prayed, women were completely absent from that narrative. And as a woman being there and living there, what I would find is every time I would try and enter into a conversation with a holy man, a sadhu, um, I would be shunned. I tried to touch the feet of one man um, and four men came to push me away saying he'd never been touched by a woman. Um, and 
through the conversations, it felt like a very interesting time to be there because as I was there, on one hand, I was seeing how women were being treated in these spaces and how there was no space for the feminine. On the other hand, I was seeing images of these goddesses and stories of these goddesses that were being told to me. And this was also, again, kind of the peculiarity of this moment where time kind of slows down and you feel like you're there for a reason, you know, you feel like you're really witnessing something um, as an unfolding of a story. And as I was sitting there trying to trying to make conversation, trying to enter into spiritual discourse with a lot of a lot of the saints there or the holy men there, I was also being revealed stories about the feminine. There was a story about Yamuna herself and how the world begins with a woman's desire. And I can tell you some of these stories if you like. Yeah. There were stories about Ganga, there were stories about Kali, all of these incredible, luscious stories that spoke to a spectrum of, of feminine power that was somehow absent from where I was. Um, the kind of straw on the camel's back for me is after two months of, of being there in and out and feeling very overwhelmed trying to, to find myself in that space, um, there was a, a woman from Nepal who came wandering through and she was mad but in the most beautiful devotional way possible, right? She really felt like one of the saints that we read about, Akamahadevi and Dal, Lalla. Um, and everything for her was an act of worship. She would, you know, gather flowers and it would become into an act of worship. And then seeing seeing how, how devotional she was in her nature, a lot of the holy men in the camp we were at, they started to put her into domestic tasks. So they'd be like, go and sweep the, the you know, floors. You know, go and wash the dishes. But even that became into an act of worship for her until they got so insecure by her being there that they literally threw her out of the space with like with chappals with their, their slippers in their hand uh, calling her a mad woman and that for me was like the breaking point then I was like this isn't I've had enough of being here I'm trying to trying to find myself in a space where there's no space for me here. Um, in a final conversation with with the holy man, which again felt as if it was meant to happen, I was saying to him that I was leaving uh, with the, the head sadhu of, of our uh, camp, of our khara. And I was telling him that I was leaving. I said, I've had enough here. There's no space for me here. I'm going to go. And he was asked me why I was upset. And I said, we have these images of goddesses all over our walls and you, you treat us as if we're, you know, we're scum. <laughs> And um, he said, well, if you want to be treated like a goddess, then why are you waiting for anybody? Whose permission are you seeking? Who's going to treat you like that? Treat yourself like that. I was like, that's a very convenient thing to say, like, <laughs> as you sit there naked with your trishul. <laughs> but the more I started to think about it, the more I started to, to realize that actually there was no reason for me to wait for somebody else to treat me in any way and um, that I could treat myself with, with that kind of honor and dignity. Um, and sometimes in the waiting, you know, the stop violence against women, stop war, we inadvertently reinforce the fact that there's someone else who will set us free. There's someone else who's going to redeem us, but we can redeem ourselves. So the first mural that I ever painted for Fearless was standing on the banks of the Ganga, uh, you know, scratching onto a temple wall, literally. What we worship, we shall become. And it was an image of Durga and her tiger and a little girl and her cat. And um, for me, that, that first affirmation, what we worship, we shall become, is something that has stayed very, very close to me since. I mean, that's a, such a compelling story. There's so many parts of it that are just really deeply resonating with me, not the least of which 
you're finding your own, giving yourself permission. What, what, what do you say about indulging the victim narrative the way maybe social justice, psychotherapy, other forms of institutional supposed healing modalities actually mm -hmm. reinforce a kind of n narrative, a victim narrative or victim mm -hmm. stance. How do you work with it? Mm -hmm. How do you actually, when, when we talk about women's empowerment, what actually are the active ingredients? Because it, it sounds at least in two spots in your own narrative, there was almost like a grace that happened. There was just something inside of you just took it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a message that you received. It was just, I mean, the first one was just not have sort of being done with it mm -hmm. and just the other one was when you were surrounded by all the after of the breakdown of the car or whatever where you just something from inside of you just said enough is enough mm -hmm. and i mean those are powerful internal revelations where they're catalysts for rewriting the balance mm -hmm. and so i'm just curious there's a lot of movements about empowerment, but I'm sure you've seen how they can sometimes subtly just reinforce Absolutely. the stance. And what do you have, or how do you work with it in a way that you think is more successful or effective? Absolutely. I mean, again, speaking to my lineage, um, I feel very, very grateful to have had a Gandhian influence in my life very early on. Mm. I went to a Krishnamurti school. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Krishnamurti. It was 140 acres of land and panthers and elephants and it was just magic. Um, and Gandhian philosophy became a big part of, of, I would say, like my early childhood or early my teenage years. And I am just so grateful to have seen and witnessed how spiritual the spiritual world that unseen world doesn't have to be separate from the social world and social justice movements you know this is a man who lifted salt out of water as an act of protest this is a man who would hold prayer gatherings with, as a way of bringing communities closer together as like trains are being burnt down during the partition of india um, this is also a man that said you can't fight fire with fire and i think there's there's a lot that i've drawn from that personally um, just in understanding how how there is a softer way, how we have to embody actually the tenderness and the world that we want to live in rather than constantly fight against it. So I think a lot, in a lot of social justice movements what I've witnessed, again, it is it is a, a Western way of, of viewing what it means to live in community and what it means to live in a just community. And I think we need to find an Eastern way of being able to do the same work. Um, and I, I do think that I, you know, I'm witnessing that happening in, in some, some parts of the world right now. I'm thinking of particular situations where there's kind of, um, there's an understanding that the victim is sort of fragile mm -hmm. and there's a kind of salinate or like sterilizing the certain, like making protective boundaries, mm -hmm. like canceling mm -hmm. and almost rescuing mm -hmm. and shunning away and sort of or over identifying with the wound you know like i think again it's it's good that we have a vocabulary around pain because so many generations before that didn't ever make their pain visible so it's a good thing that we have diagnosis perhaps it's a good thing that we have you know the vocabulary of the social justice world and at the same time, there is a danger of over-identifying with that position of being a victim. Uh, when we do work in the, f the fearless world, you know, so 
we work with different communities on the margins, um, right? Everything from Syrian refugees to sex workers in in Pakistan, communities affected by by gang violence in Pakistan, indigenous communities, um, uh, Dalit and Muslim communities in in India that are extremely um, oppressed right now and for a long time. And when we turn up on the streets, we turn up not as victims or not as we turn up so radically in love with ourselves that there's no space for anybody else's hate. And I think very often what kind of also, you know, in, in a lot of individual psychology practices, what you see is that when one becomes very attached to the wound or very attached to being a victim, then one actually inadvertently reinforces the same pattern over and over again. And um, so the work that we do with communities through a lot of ritual and ceremony in our workshops and then through the act of stepping into public spaces um, with a different vision of ourselves actually allows for people to move through the pain but never identify with the pain never yeah um, um, this is this is fascinating because I, I rarely think that this kind of level of subtlety analysis actually takes place in the conversation um, I mean you're in a position where you can critique the standard modus the approaches of social justice mm -hmm. because you're on the front line and you're a woman of color, and so you have that opportunity to, to critique it where maybe I don't. <laughs> but um, I'm thinking of Jung and I'm thinking of In the Shadow, like what we push against, we also reinforce. So mm -hmm. there's this kind of tension or polarization that sort of con is allowed to continue mm -hmm. by making that self-other divide. Mm -hmm these are the safe place these this is a safe place and you're the victim and you're gonna you're gonna be rescued and mm -hmm. I'm the champion that's gonna rescue you mm -hmm. everybody else is sort of vile and disgusting mm -hmm. tear down the patriarchy condemn those sadhus at the Kumeya yeah. condemn the condemn the white colonialists mm -hmm. and in, it seems in a way understandable mm -hmm. it seems but it also seems short-sighted it seems very short-term gain mm -hmm. Um, and it reinforces this kind of self-other polarity. And I, I, I think that you, you're going to probably point to Gandhi and philosophy. I'm thinking of his famous quote, an eye for an eye makes the whole world go blind. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, are we really going to embody what Christ said and turn the other cheek? I mean, is that really what you're talking, really come from that self-love first? What about what about the matrix of culture? How, 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 how do you work with the overall culture? Mm -hmm. Again, I think I think there's there is space to do both. You know, again, I don't think we need to choose either um, either sort of self self flag flagellation is that the word mm -hmm. where we're constantly putting down the self in order to be able to include someone else nor do we have to become the oppressor in order to fight back the oppressor what I really love about being in Bali and also a lot of um, Indian Hindu traditions is that the demons are very much included in the conversation you know you leave offerings for the God but you also leave offerings for the demons and I feel like that is again calling people in rather than calling people out mm -hmm. trying to find the ways that we can I mean, that, that right there <laughs> Say it again and really tell us what you mean. Yeah, uh, very often when we're working on the streets as well, right? It's not like when we turn up in those spaces with these communities who don't have access to these, these spaces, including myself. As a woman, when I turn up on the streets in Delhi and I'm painting a mural at 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, very often I find that I will look around and I see that there's a circle of men around me, you know, just staring at me. Um, but instead of... of 
screaming at them, telling them, why are you looking at me? Instead, we actually just ask them to paint and they come and they paint with us. And in the process, whatever that tension was of self and the other, it it transmutes into something else. And I have, I have witnessed so many miracles like this. I call it miracles because it truly is when, when, when two things merge, you know, when, when two opposite ends of the spectrum become into a third space where both those realities can coexist. I do think it's a miracle. We've had moments where at the like at the front line of the Shaheen Bagh protests, which is the India the, in, India's biggest protest since the independence movement, right? Like there were thousands and thousands of thousands of women who were blocking a national highway in Delhi against the draconian CA and RC laws that potentially made um, something like 15 million. Uh, I might have to check that number. But 15 million Muslim citizens, including my own family, potentially um, refugees of our country, illegal citizens of the country. And so we were all there. It blocking a street, police on one side. Every day you're hearing stories of you know, spies, gunshots. We're hearing gunshots as we're painting in the background. There are threats of like riots coming into the space. There were mobs coming into the space. And the police and the protesters were very much in opposition to each other. I remember as we were tearing down the scaffolding of the mural, as we'd finished, a policeman came up to us. And I was like, OK, great. This is the moment I go to jail. <laughs> and he just looked up at the, the image that we'd created together. And he was just like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. What was the image? Um, it was an image of the protesters that he was there, you know, in opposition to. And we've had multiple moments like this where... Uh, Almost just the aesthetic beauty of it just undefended him. Exactly, exactly. And that's that's also what I sometimes say about myself is like, I want to live with an undefended heart, you know. I want to live in a way that I embody the love that I want to receive. and. Um, and I think that is a way of of disarming ourselves, which and we need a dis disarming right now. Yeah. Uh, so I'm noticing in your work at least two threads that I think is, to me, they 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 go back to the original archetype that we we're talking about of of we're heading into maybe a paradigm where there's a rebalancing yes. after eons, maybe thousands of years, depending on what perspective you look at it, of imbalance. Mm -hmm. And two of the threads that I see in your work are the creative side and the other one is the narrative side, mm -hmm. like story mm -hmm. and art. Mm -hmm. And the story side, I mean, it's mythology, using stories and mythologies. And the other one is actual physical art, creating something of beauty, something ex expressing oneself. Can you talk to us about the fusing and if maybe maybe there's a Trimurti, maybe there's a, a third mm -hmm a third element there. Yeah, I mean, t for a second also to speak to what you were saying about rebalancing and, you know, self and the other, as much as I am in praise of the feminine, I am in absolute devotion to the masculine. And that would be another aspect to my work, which maybe we can also speak to in a bit, is love and is eroticism and is the meeting and merging of two seemingly different things. And I feel like that is the ultimate, that space of union is actually the goal, really. Um, and that's also something that's missing from a lot of you know, social discourse. It's a lot of the, the feminist movement in general tends to be very much in defense and not in praise of the feminine and so I think there's another way of being or destructing the mask destroying, oh, the, destroying masculine. the masculine yeah. I think there's another way of being which is actually empowering and rebalancing like you said both and um, and I feel like it's such a beautiful opportunity not just in 
the collective but also in individual relationships to be able to finally be in a space where the masculine and feminine can meet as consorts you know like this is this has been the dream is that to be able to to find that space of union with another is such a beautiful thing and that happens through love and that is another whole universe that my work uh, speaks to in in my own intimate way um Speaking to what you were saying, what were you saying? It was the mythology <laughs> or the narrative combined yeah. with the art. I mean, well, maybe we can use a case example because you were recently in Sri Lanka. Yes, yeah. I mean, just t walk us through like how your actual work has recently played out. I mean, you're in Sri Lanka. Obviously, they're at a tipping point as a, con as a country. Yeah. Um, is sort of post-colonial capitalistic experiment has gone awry. It's mm -hmm. disenfranchised the entire country. They're they're in de they're in debt they're going to go to the world bank the world bank has become this sort of centralized government take us through how your work is actually translating to heal the divide mm -hmm. and how is how do you see the work restoring order there in sri lanka mm -hmm. So with a lot of the work that we do, um, you know, we, we turn up in moments of fear and make space for the co-creation of beauty and collective mythology. Um, now, when we think about myth, uh, and again, I also grew up with the Campbell and the Jungian references and also, you know, the, the, the huge, like, sort of vocabulary of myth that Indian culture comes with. I think sometimes we see it as being something that is either inherited or stagnant or put on a pedestal. And it's not something that we can create ourselves and embody ourselves. And as we know, you know, the the real the real nectar comes through, the elixir comes through when you start to see uh, yourself in those myths and you start to see those myths in you, right? You see those archetypes and, and those uh, shadows and, and the masks in you. Um, so with the fearless sort of methodology, it was bringing together what I had known about you know collective culture creation ritual ceremony collective uh, ways of transmuting emotion with also then individual practices around self-portraiture painting and actually before colonization I would also say that those universes weren't really separate like I feel like being in a good protest march you actually feel like you're in a ceremony because there's chanting there's you know there are drums like there's a, a tremendous movement of energy that's happening there are uh, visions of um, flags and symbols being lifted up into the air. So a lot of my writing also in the last couple of years has been about drawing the parallels between um, any kind of social justice movement, any kind of revolution and older ways of being, you know, older ways of, of coming together and shifting energy together. Um, in that that world, um, before colonization, art wasn't something that was kept away in a gallery space, nor was it something like my most recent auction, which was a commodity that is you know, being bid, bid at uh, as if it was a piece of meat. Um, art was something that was meant to transmute collective and individual energy and transform collective and individual energy. And it was also not separate from story. You look at all of those beautiful Buddhist tankas and paintings, they're embedded in the mythology of that space. You look at uh, you know the the poetry of the saints of um, of Kabir of uh, Shah Abdul Latif Bhittai of Andal of, of the Alwar saints. It's all it's all linked. It's interwoven with the mythology of that space of the with the narratives of that space. And I think a big part of the separation within the art world has to see ourselves as separate, to see ourselves of of recognition in a gallery space, but not on the streets, not in someone's hand. 
so both with my collective practice with Fearless as well as with my own individual practice as an artist through my paintings, my sculptures, my processions, my, my ritual performances, I'm really trying to also understand how to decolonize some of those approaches to art um, and actually see art as being something that is not is not separate from life at all, uh, or separate from story at all, or separate from myth at all. It's, it's there are no separations. Integration, itti itti. Itti itti. This too, that too. You're you're uh, sitting in front of a self-portrait, mm -hmm. and it's since the moment I saw it, it, it's enthralling and captivating and multi-dimensional. Can you say something about it? Um, yeah, I, I mean, in this this one, it's called Worthy of Worship, and um, it speaks to a lot of that very luscious Lakshmi universe. I really <laughs> do love that luscious universe. Um, but it is it is really about seeing the myths in us and and seeing us in the mythology as well. Um, so it has all of the the tellings of Lakshmi's universe: the conch shell, the lotuses, the drippiness, the honeys, the nectars of her abundance. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous. Thank it's you. it's really beautiful. So let's talk a little bit about the future. Mm -hmm for you the future and what do you see as sort of the happening in the collective and if there are any kind of myths or prophecies that you draw into in your work about not only where we're coming from but where we're going and maybe we can close the loop by revisiting the original uh, quote because it's sort of re-emerged time and time again throughout the conversation going back in order to go forward wait before we get there i didn't answer the question about sri lanka mm. so let me take you through that yeah but the work of, of fearless collective is to turn up in moments of fear and create beauty and um, so the way that we do that just in very practical ways not in my, my lofty ways is that we uh, we turn up at the front lines of different movements we work with communities who are most marginalized most affected by those moments of fear and we take them through processes of ritual and storytelling. We do very immersive workshops with these communities that don't look um, they don't look like, they, they, there are no post-it notes out there, you know, it is actually, we create, custom create ceremonies for each of these communities that we work with and from those rituals and ceremonies appear images, uh, visions, myths and from from that we then project it onto the street and we create huge public monuments with those communities of those communities. Um, so we move through the pain in the ritual, we talk about the wound, we talk about the issue but we don't stop there, we also move beyond the issue into, into the world that we want to inhabit, that safe and sacred future we want to inhabit. Um, and then the images that we create eventually are visions to a future that may not exist yet almost portals to a future that may not exist yet but because we've seen it we know it can um, very often also I think we get so caught up in the issue like yes the crisis in Sri Lanka is overwhelming and a lot of the language at the protest sites that I was at were also about getting rid of the, the current uh, ruler you know of uh, Rajapaksha and then when he left things fell apart again when he did actually so it isn't just about what we do want, it is also a recognition of what we do want. And that's what we try and bring in to those spaces is an articulation of those safe and sacred futures that we want to live in. As I'm listening, I'm also, I'm hearing what happened to you as a little girl at 13. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all, I mean, it's uncanny. I mean, Jung was really good about this because it, it seems to me that he really trusted in the unconscious. Mm -hmm. He, he really didn't, he, he opposed what Freud was saying about the unconscious, that the unconscious is sort of like a, 
you know, something to get rid of, yeah. something that's tripping us up. Yeah. Whereas Jung thought the unconscious, if given an, if given the conditions, and was, you you were given permission to express your rage or your discontent, your pain, mm -hmm. your sorrow, that also within that something would then transmute naturally and something would emerge. And for you, in your story, in your bio, it sounds like that happened as a girl with your mom. You were painting, it gave you voice to express your abandonment, and in its own course, something also revealed itself about your future. Mm -hmm. And it became a sort of catalyst to grow towards. Mm -hmm. But then you're also describing the very same processes if you go into you know, public spaces, countries, marginalized communities. It's like, I'm, I'm imagining that it's a, a week or two worth of work mm -hmm. with, with people yeah. where you give them permission to express their wound mm -hmm. and archetypally images emerge. Mm -hmm. They're held in a kind of community, a, a sanctuary, a, a refuge, and eventually other images emerge about what the collective will hopes for itself. Exactly. And that's, I think, the difference between imagination and dreaming for me, is that imagination is very active. And I think fear is an absolute misuse of the imagination. Because when we're children, we're able to, you know, think about both the demons that may live underneath our bed, but also the celestial beings that, that, uh, that reside above us. And as we grow up, I think we begin to start to use that, that same vital force to only imagine the worst that could happen, right? Like when I walk on the streets in India, the the dominant narrative is, what if I go out and something happens to me? Like it's a constant string of of fear. And uh, it is, it's the same, it's the imagination. And I think love is the most active use of the imagination. When you can imagine, I think even when we fall in love, we somehow are able to imagine an entire lifetime together, you know, in an instant, just by meeting someone, you can imagine an entire lifetime together. But love, even outside of romantic love, is the most active use of the imagination. It's it's seeing seeing the other and merging in union, as we were t speaking about earlier. Um, and I feel like magic is when your imagination starts to speak back to you. And I've seen enough magic to know that it exists. Yeah. How do you facilitate l that connection with love in these larger groups? Mm -hmm. Like, what what is it that you what what device do you use, or is it? Again, I think a lot of it is like. That, like I said, that that if you love yourself, then there's no space for enough and, and anybody else's hate. And I'm not talking about self-love in this kind of, you know, modern psychology kind of way, but it is a recognition of yourself in all of its wholeness and totality. Um, so do you, do you do teachings with it's, the groups? It's, no, it's not even... Do you draw from them their own inherent practices? We do workshops around self-representation, so essentially self-portraiture. Mm. Um, and in the process of people representing themselves is who they want to be rather than who they're told to be. There is a, a switch that just occurs through both the rituals that we take them through, through the workshops itself that we take them through, and then the self-representation part where, like, how do you want to be seen on the streets? What kind of monuments do we want to create of these communities? You see in indigenous communities or black communities or Muslim communities, and you open up any newspaper and you see images of their pain and their oppression being reiterated over and over again. But jo that joy, the wonder that we've also seen in say Black Lives Matter, we've seen in the Pride movement, where it's not just the fight, but it's actually a self-recognition um, that takes us forward. And so with, with that work, even in Sri Lanka, the work that we were really doing, 
was saying, okay, we know what a good, a bad leader looks like. We know we don't want Rajapaksha. The entire village, it was a temporary village that was created outside of the parliament with everything from libraries to, you know, um, uh, tear gas cinema halls to everything. And it was recently torn down, actually, and the mural was destroyed as well. But um, we knew the, the village itself is called Gota Gogama, which means Gota go home. Like we don't want Gota anymore, our current leader anymore. And but we don't really know what kind of leaders we want. We don't have affirmations of the kind of leadership and the kind of power that we want to see. And so a lot of the work that we were doing there was about an affirmation of, of that power. Yeah. 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 So uh, let's revisit the let's let's revisit your um you know, when before we started, I, there was a moment there where you were talking about coming to Bali mm -hmm. to uh, to take refuge because mm -hmm. being an activist can be draining, and um, you, I'm sure, you have your own moments where you get succumb to your own stories and the sheer volume or immensity of the of the global crisis or the the momentum of the grief. Yeah. Um, but there was something that you were saying off camera about. I mean, the way I heard it was in my own lens of the Buddhist notion of compassion is always unified with wisdom of emptiness. If you if you're too if you're too much on one side, the world becomes reified. The problem itself becomes reified. It becomes so immense. On the other hand, if you're too on the wisdom side, you can forget. You can become aloof or too clinical or too removed. Mm -hmm. How do you take care of yourself? Mm -hmm. I think that's a beautiful question and it also comes into a lot of these archetypal relationships, right? Um, there's a beautiful story about how Shiva emerges, you know, on Mount Kailash he emerges out of a lifetime of revelation and meditation and he opens his eyes gently and he looks at his consort Parvati and he, he says to her, all of this is Maya, everything is an illusion. And she's just like, dude, what the hell? <laughs> I've been out here tending the fires, fertilizing the fields, yeah. birthing, rebirthing, rebirthing, <laughs> you know, at the cremation grounds. Like, I have been, I have been pollinating the world. I have been tending. And how dare you say this is all an illusion? So she just disappears and she leaves. And when she leaves, all of the sadhus and all of the sinners and all of the saints, everybody stops. The entire world comes to a standstill. Mm. And there's a beautiful, beautiful image of Parvati sitting on her throne and uh, Shiva like literally sitting at her feet with a begging bowl in his hand saying please come back to me I'm so sorry and she's like kind of very reluctantly giving him a handful of rice being like okay I'll come back and, and then the whole world started to regenerate itself and uh, in that form she's known as Annapurna the goddess of abundance but it's the story of the river Yamuna and they say that um, the same way that there's Adam and Eve, there's also our first man and woman, was Yama and Yami. And Yama and Yami wandered the earth eternal um, until one day uh, Yami felt this sudden desire creep over her. She looked at him and, you know, suddenly started fluttering her eyelashes a little bit and, and saw him with a lover's gaze. And um, as she turned to him and she said, can we be together? He refused her and he was like shocked. He was like, no, there's no way we can, this can happen. And in refusing procreation, he became into the god of death, Yamraj, Yama. Mm -hmm. um, and her, in choosing creation and choosing desire, she turns into a river 
and she makes her way down the Indian subcontinent and in the process, you know, fertilizes the fields and brings life um, into India and eventually then meets Krishna who and takes on the color of his skin, becomes um, her, he, she becomes his kind of true, her true love's form as, as a blue river, as Krishna's river. Um, and this story really speaks to many things. One is that the world can begin with a woman's desire, which I think is beautiful. But that also, mm. that death and rebirth can sometimes come hand in hand. It's not one and then the other, it can also coexist. Same myth happens in Greece with uh, Demeter and Zeus. Yeah. During the descent of um, Persephone into the underworld, Demeter is, has lost her child and she's the goddess of abundance. Mm -hmm. She creates the crops mm -hmm. and in her sorrow, she stops working mm -hmm. and the world starves and everybody goes to Zeus saying, hey, the, the world, there's no more crops. Yeah. So Zeus comes to, to Demeter and beseeches her to, to create abundance again. To, and she says, well, then help me retrieve my daughter from the underworld. Mm. Same story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely the same story, exactly. Exactly, and I think, speaking to what you said, you know, there's, we often think that we can only exist in one binary or the other, right? Mm. We often think that either I have to become into the hermit, all of this is illusion, the world's gonna go to an end and I must, I need to, completely, you know, dissolve myself into renounce. renounce everything. Renunciation is such a big theme even in Hinduism, Buddhism. Um, and then there's the other extreme, which is that you're completely embedded in the world, embedded in the issue, in victim mode, you know, working with, doing relief work. Like it's, it, one always feels like we have to choose, but I, I think we don't have to choose. Um, and this is a recurring theme in my life, is that both can exist. And actually it's, it's, it is with the existence of both that true union is possible and true healing is possible um, so right now personally I'm in a place where when the pandemic hit I had just signed a lifetime lease on a contract for a, inside a beautiful water temple a piece of land inside a beautiful water temple here in Bali a Vishnu temple um, and I was about to start building my life of refuge and um, you know sometimes you don't get what you want and instead you get thrown into the other extreme and it was an interesting kind of moment as well because just as I was starting to envision this future for myself the present and the realities of the present became very clear to me so I rushed back to India I was at the protests in Shaheen Bagh like I said like thousands of people on the street Indian flag painted on my forehead gunshots and uh, gunshots in the background like you know hoisting a flag like 70 foot feet into the sky with 80,000 people reciting the Indian constitution. So suddenly found myself at the front line of, of resistance movements. And to be honest, in the last two and a half years, that hasn't stopped. It's been continuous. We went into deep isolation, which for me was a whole, you know, I, in India, isolation wasn't like this. It's not like being out in, in by the river. It was actually just being by myself for months on end with police patrolling the street. Um, and and then as soon as lockdowns would open we there was so much grief that needed to be worked through and addressed you know there were there was a domestic migrant workers crisis where with our lockdown it was overnight it was like almost quite mythological actually in a way where just snap our prime minister um said everything is shutting down tonight no 
no rice, no no sleep, no grain, no life, no light, no fire, no trains, no plane, nothing. It was a complete shutdown. And um, then when things would open up again, there was no choice but to deal with what had happened. So we worked with Dalit and Muslim waste pickers who had been the most affected during the pandemic. We worked with a series of different communities that had been had been really affected by what was going on. Um, so I went straight from deep isolation mm. to you know relief, to isolation, to relief work. And in, in the process of that, even though the months of isolation, I was alone, um, it wasn't a nourishing time, I think, for a lot of us. It was a terrifying time because I, I really envy the people who had the ability to shut off what was going on in the world in a way and just do their own thing. I couldn't do that in the last two and a half years. I knew that I needed to be there to be witness to this time. And um, being witness comes with both the work but it also comes with, with being acutely aware of what is happening. And that comes with pain, you know, it comes with a lot. Like seeing what happened with second wave in India, it was, our streets had become into a cremation ground. Our, there were images of, of bodies being washed up against the Ganga. Those are things you can't turn a blind eye to. You can't close your eyes and disappear in those moments. Um, and having said that, uh, after two and a half years, when I made my way back to Bali uh, for what I thought was going to be a two-week-long, um, you know, reconnection with the land, reconnection with my friends here, I suddenly felt the weight of the last two and a half years um, in my system. Yeah, and it felt like I needed to rest and I needed time to actually go back into that space of refuge, into that space of imagination, of, of that unwounded space. And so I've been here uh, now in and out, you know, the kumb, yeah, to the kumb, to that unwounded space before the wound existed, uh, which speaking of polarities and, and um, you know, the heart in Sanskrit is anahata. Um, and anahata means that which cannot be struck. Or, and I, when I used to read that translation, I was always like, what does that even mean, that which cannot be struck? And then I realized it was that which cannot be wounded, that which cannot be struck, that pure space that that is that exists before the, the wound. And, and it is, even in the iconography of it, the anahata is the meeting of the, the feminine, the downward pointing triangle, and the masculine, the upward pointing triangle. Um, and so, yeah, so I really returned to that unwounded space where right now I'm working on a series of um, sculptures of, you know, huge, beautiful celestial beings. Like I've been doing all of this reading about celestial birds, uh, the Homa, the Simurg, the Garuda, and, uh, and I'm creating a procession uh, which which imagines the 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 beginning of the Satya Yoga in a way. So I'm creating this procession of hundreds of celestial beings, planets, plants that descend onto the earth to herald the next uh, the next way forward. Um, so I'm just here like reading about birds and reading about you know the cosmos and conceptions of heaven and utopia, and it feels really good for me to take a break from the realities of of right now into the imagination of what can be. It's a perfect way to end because you're you're basically embodying you know the thread, which is in the disillusion then the the reemergence of the archetype of the future. Mm -hmm. So I mean you you mentioned there the yugas, so you're talking about the we're in the ascent. Mm -hmm. We're in the uh, the movement up mm -hmm. from the from the sort of 
tipping point or the, the collapse. Any other um, mythological visions just to end us with or, or, or uh, symbols that you want to end with? I mean, I think we're sitting in front of a, a very beautiful symbol right here, which is that even, you know, even our gods um, find spaces of union through the consorts that they choose. And so I think for us to find a place of that balance, that, that middle point that also um, our friends have been talking about so much, a space of union, a space of both the reality as well as the future, both the past as well as the possibility. Um, I think that is the space that we need to constantly invoke and revere. Shiloh, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. And I truly, I know Emily and I are really looking forward to getting to know you more on the island and, and spending much more time with you. Thank you for, for all your work and, and all your time. And please, can we come visit your little temple? Yes, absolutely. And we look forward to it. And thank you so much, dear friends, for all your encouragement and support along the way with our startup here with the Wisdom Keeper podcast live in Bali now during the rebirth of the planet. And so we really appreciate all your uh, attention and your efforts to continue the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Shiloh and her uh, enigmatic and yet uh, aesthetically pleasing and rich, really rich and deep synthesis of mythology and narrative and art and social activism. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you feel as inspired as I do about the archetype of death and rebirth that we are now amidst. Until the next time, thank you so very much. listening to the Wisdom Keeper podcast. If you've enjoyed this presentation of sacred knowledge, kindly like, subscribe, review, and share our podcast and video series on YouTube with your network so that more people can benefit from these teachings and together we can create a brighter future. If you're interested in my online courses, our community membership, and pilgrimages I lead, consider visiting the Contemplative Studies program at gradualpath.com. Until we gather again, all best wishes.